Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Conover, and hey, you might know I also host a TV show called Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, and you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. Okay, we've got a bit of a special one for you guys this week, all right? As you probably know, every other week, it's a bi-weekly podcast. It's a little hard to keep up a weekly schedule, so we do a bi-weekly here. Every other week, I talk to one of the experts that we had on the TV show, I bring them into the studio, and we talk to them for a lot longer. And the reason we started the podcast is I found that when I talked to them on set, I had so many questions about their work. I had an insatiable curiosity, and I wanted to bring them into the studio so I could ask them those questions and share the answers with you guys. And, you know, by fulfilling my own curiosity, maybe fulfill yours as well. That process brought me to the interview that you're going to hear today, but it's a bit of a different one. Our guest today did not appear on the TV show. Uh, His name is John. Jonathan Blow, he's an independent video game developer, um, and his most well-known games are called Braid and The Witness. They're incredible, incredibly dense, philosophical, thoughtful, and most importantly, incredibly immaculately designed puzzle games. Um, and as you guys might know, if you follow me on Twitter or if you you know interact with me in other places on social media, I am very, very, very into video games. It's the art form that I relate to most uh, intimately. It's the art form that I grew up immersing myself in, um, and it's the art form that I continue to make sure that I keep up with um, and, you know, that I experience all the uh, all the works that are on the vanguard of the medium, right? Um, so The Witness came out earlier this year. It was an incredibly well-reviewed game, very well-regarded game. If you've never played it, it's uh, superficially similar to Myst, for instance, um, or other games where, you know, you're a single person walking around on an island and you're solving puzzles and there's no one else on the island and there's a little bit of a story that unfolds, um, which is that's a genre of game I like. When I played The Witness, I was completely overcome with it. Um, First of all, it's incredibly beautiful. The puzzles are very, very challenging and very, very interesting. But they're also very challenging and interesting in a very specific, uh, fascinating way where it feels like while you're playing the game, you're having a conversation with the developer, Jonathan Blow, who we're going to talk to today. It feels like you're having a conversation with him about puzzles through the medium of puzzles, completely wordlessly, but you feel like you've entered into a dialogue and the game critically teaches you as you're playing it. It teaches you, you find yourself learning how to do the puzzles. You find your mind expanding to different possibilities of the way the puzzles might be solved. The, some of the puzzles will make you laugh. Some of them will make you see the, you know, see the entire game in a different way. And most importantly, the deeper I got into the game... Uh, there are little scraps of information. I don't want to spoil too much, but little, little details hidden throughout the game that the more I experienced, the more of the game I played, I found myself actually seeing the world around me differently 
honestly, and look, this is going to sound like totally hyperbolic, but I swear I'm not exaggerating this for effect. It's one of the most profound connections I've had with a work of art in many, many years. Um, and when I finished the game, I found myself, again, consumed by questions about it, about how the game was made, about the approach of the developer to the game, about the works that he had integrated into the game. These, uh, you know, there's references to, again, without being too spoilery, different uh, philosophers, different religious writers, different thinkers of all stripes um, that uh, I wanted to know uh, what his uh, relationship was with those thinkers. And so I managed to get in touch with Jonathan Blow, the developer, and uh, he so incredibly agreed to do this interview um, in which I got to ask him those questions. So even though it's not directly related to the show, um, it came from the same place of curiosity and seeking, and so I thought that you guys might be interested in it. Um, so the structure of this interview also is a little bit different because in a game you have to worry about spoilers, and so I don't want this episode to ruin the game for you if you haven't played it. In fact, if you haven't played the game and it sounds interesting to you, I hope you check it out. It's on PlayStation 4. It's also on PC and I think Mac. I'm not sure. It might be on Mac. Uh, so if you hear the interview and you are interested in playing the game, great. Here's the thing. We do get into more spoilery territory as the interview goes and we do our best to demarcate how far we got in, but we don't like, you know, there's no big red light that flashes that says, hey, a spoiler's coming, right? So look, if you haven't played the game before or if you've played a little bit of the game, the beginning of the interview is for you. We talk about Jonathan's history as a game developer. We talk about, you know, sort of the the basic idea behind the game and how we came across it. Um, and we talk about some of the more surface level concepts. As the interview goes, we dive deeper and deeper into elements of the game that if you haven't played it or if you've only played a little bit of it, you may not have experienced. And by the end, we're just straight up talking about the end of the game. And to be honest, if you haven't gotten that far, the interview might not make that much sense. Here's the thing. As someone who finished the whole game, I had questions that I needed to ask. And I feel like other people who've played the whole game, they have those questions as well. And I wanted to do an interview that would serve them too. So this is an interview where, you know, as you get through it, if you find yourself not understanding shit, hey, it's okay to hit pause and come back later. Go play the game and then come back and see what you think then. So, again, this is a bit of an experimental interview for us. It's a different subject matter. It's a different format. I hope you guys will go on the journey with me because I swear to you, this guy is so fascinating. His work is so interesting. He is just at the top of his field in, in every way. And I, after experiencing his work, I thought I had to talk to him and... Thought you guys might be interested as well. So, uh, look, without further ado, let's dive right in. Here's Jonathan Blow. Well, uh, John, thank you so much for being here. Sure. <laughs> um, it's a little bit of a change of pace for our show because normally I interview folks who have been on my show and we talk about like the ideas that they have worked on, etc., and I think the reason I wanted to speak to you on the podcast was that I think the closest connection I can draw is that in my own work as a comedian, I try to uh, give the audience something to take away with them from uh, the show when they see it. Uh, I'm, I'm always put in mind of like a quote I heard from Penn Jillette once that the goal is to have people leave the show and be a different person when they leave a live comedy show or a or, a, 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 you know, in my case, like watching a television show, right? And I really had that feeling profoundly after playing The Witness. I felt like when I finished it that I was, like, seeing the world in a different way, in a way that was, you know, in many ways much greater than I've ever had with a game or many other pieces of media, period. And so I guess I'm curious, like, is that 
Do you have any sort of intention when you are creating a game to give people that experience, or what is your intent, if any? Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you had a nice experience with it. Um, <laughs> you know, when I sit down to make a game, I'm always trying to make the kind of thing that I would want to play and that I would want to be interested in, right? And personality-wise, I'm not really an escapist person, or I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who believes that something should be entertainment. And, you know, you go to the theater and you see a movie and you laugh at a couple jokes, and then you leave and the movie has done nothing, right? Right. I'm, I'm you know, like, like people, maybe it's a uniquely American view, maybe not, <laughs> I don't know, but people have this idea that entertainment is supposed to let you get away from your life for a little bit because your life is supposed to be, like, sad and unfulfilling or something. <laughs> and this, right. you know, and, and for me it's the opposite, right? If I go see a film or a play or listen to music, it's because I want to go towards something, right? It's not that I want to go away from something. Yes, and so when I make a game, um, I have that same mindset. It's I want to go towards something and bring a little bit of that back to my life rather than get away from my life. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people want that. And for some reason, you know, some segments of the arts have more of that mindset. And, and somewhere like video games, there's very little to none of that. Right. I- that's really interesting you put it that way because I think I have the same relationship with the with the media that I ingest in general that I'm trying to add to my life. I'm trying to inform myself or better myself or expand my worldview in some way. And sometimes I even go about it too obsessively. Like I, I listen to too many nonfiction audiobooks in a row that are really heavy and, oh, wait, I need to like read a sci-fi novel because I'm driving myself crazy, right? Um, but, it, yeah, it's true that there's less in video games for that mindset that a lot of times – Sometimes it seems as though video games uh, or certain games are designed almost explicitly to sort of eat up time that people would rather be. They almost want to be sort of dead for a moment. And so they're going to, you know, play this game and sort of go through a number of tasks. Um, or at least I feel that certain games when I play them are are made with that in mind. Um, but, yeah, I felt that The Witness was uh, – you may not relate to this at all, but I had the sense that it was designed to impart a worldview or, or a, a way of looking at things. That was the sense that I had while playing it. What, was yeah. it at all? Or? Well, if you say impart a worldview, that's not exactly what I meant to do, right? Mm-hmm. But but I think I think that may be me taking the words a little too strictly, right? Because what – like I, I don't – didn't see my role in designing the game as – giving people a certain very specific thing to believe mm-hmm. or to have them come away in any specific state, right? But what the game is about, in at least a part, like anytime I say what the game's, it's a very complicated game with yes. a lot of stuff in it. So this is going to be a massive oversimplification of one <laughs> piece of the idea. But it's about having that taste for looking at the world and trying to understand the world, right? Which mm-hmm. is a very noble pursuit. One that I think, um, while at the same time, there's been a long history of very respectable people who sort of, you know, put their two cents into the bowl about like, I, you know, I've worked really hard for my life at understanding the world. And here's the best that I have to, to tell you, right, mm-hmm. after all that. Um, at the same time, again, I feel like we're in a society that doesn't value that idea very much or doesn't is very cynical about the idea that you could understand the world or that you, um, Hmm. I mean, in a very, um, in a relatively shallow sense, we have that, right? So we have, 
like science and engineering have been very successful. Yes. And so in terms of describing the world as it as it is. Well, in in terms of especially understanding small parts of the world, right? Mm. So if you want to build a bridge, man, we can really build bridges today, right? We can do a great job at that. A computer is an insanely complicated thing. We can do a, a great job at that, right? But the, there seems to be a nihilism in at least American culture and in, in much of the West if you try to expand the scope of that understanding up to anything bigger than like a particular subcategory, right? Ah. Um, and so... Part of what the game is is trying to do is be an exploration of, you know, hey, if we're really just trying to look at the world and understand the world, how do you even do that? How do you how do you take <laughs> these little things and put them together into a, a bigger yes. picture? And how do you do that without just being a wacko and just going off and <laughs> believing a random thing that's totally wrong and dumb, which is something that a lot of people choose right. to do, right? For our audience who hasn't played the game, I'd just like to talk about the main game-like feature of it, which is the puzzle solving in the game. Um, the puzzles are all, for those who haven't played it, this very specifically designed where there's always a, there's sort of these mazes on a grid um, and there's uh, that you one solves going from the beginning to the end. You can tell what the beginning is and what the end is. And there's symbols in the maze that tell you how, like what the path needs to be, right? The, the path, the solution. Um, and they're scattered across this uh, sort of beautifully designed uh, island. Could you describe the sort of principles that went into designing the puzzles? Because they struck me as very specific. Um, I, you seem like a very opinionated puzzle designer. <laughs> so you can look at the puzzles from two directions. And I'll talk about it from the player direction going forward and then the designer direction going back. Right? Oh, interesting. So from the player going forward... The puzzles are about engaging in a process of investigation or in a mm -hmm. process of looking at what's there, right? So you said a minute ago there's symbols that tell you what the answer is. They they do, but not real not to a fresh new player in the game. Exactly. Because they're they're completely nonverbal, they're non linguistic symbols that have in as best as I could manage, no previous associations with things that you would recognize in the world. They're mm -hmm. very abstract, it's right? like a black square, a, a cross, or a, a yeah. such kind, yeah. Yeah, and so part of what happens is you have to engage in a little bit of a preliminary experimentation to try and figure out sort of what works. And so the puzzles start off very simple where there's only a few things that you could possibly do and you maybe try them and one of them is right and the other ones are wrong and then you start to engage a sort of pattern understanding kind of mind of like why was that one right and why were the other ones wrong and you maybe form an idea yes and then you see if that idea holds up through the next few and it might hold up for a couple and then turn wrong and you're like wait I thought I understood what was going on yeah why and and My so it was incorrect yeah it's a process of developing an understanding from something very simple to something very complex actually and and in some of these sequences in the game there's sort of hard left turns where you think you've fully got it and then just something totally random is in there out of left field and you have to sort of change your understanding yes. of the system and and that's one of the biggest i have in talking to friends about the game uh, that that's sort of one of the biggest frustration points or one of the uh experiences that i think stands out stand out to people is that you you can go through sometimes almost half of a puzzle section thinking i understand how these work and then get to a point where you're like wait a second i understand this this isn't working this puzzle is wrong <laughs> and you are confronted with the fact that the puzzle 
cannot be wrong um, because I, I, we assume you play tested it. All the puzzles yep. are solvable. Yep. Um, and to my eye, anyway, the puzzles seem rigorously fair. Uh, so, so often when you run into a situation like that, it's it's a big game and it's a nonlinear game, right? So when you get stuck, there's like all these other areas on the island that you can go to, and right. sometimes you might find something that reminds you of that puzzle, but that has some other different features to it, and you solve that one, and and you might. Um, get a cl- clue from that to come back. Yes. But also, the very interesting thing that that happens, right, is, you know, you're always problem-solving on at least two levels, right? You have your very straightforward, rational mind that's like, okay, A means B and B means C, and I'm, I'm if-thening in my head, right? But, you know, part of your mind is just working very hard in a subconscious, nonlinear way mm. on problems. And so what happens very often with this game is people are stuck, uh, they don't have any idea what to do, and they go just take a break. They go do whatever they're doing in life, or yes. they go to sleep and wake up the next morning, and then they just suddenly know the answer to the problem. Yes. And that, that happens That happens yeah. a lot to many people who play the game. And, uh, you know, from... I, I don't know exactly how to invoke that experience for sure, but from a design standpoint, there's criteria that I stick by to, to try and encourage uh, the possibility of that, right? Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is a really interesting experience. So one of the other things that the game is about, um, so on the one hand, there's this methodical um, developing an understanding in a, in a very complex, I almost want to say manual way, because I'm putting the steps together mm-hmm. in my head. But then on the other hand, there's almost this feeling of epiphany that happens where it's just like, bam, right away, you understand something. And it's like an instantaneous transition where a yes. minute ago, you really had no idea and now you know. Yes. And there's a contrast between those two kinds of experience that's interesting. Yeah, there. I was really struck by, uh, I saw a talk that you gave at IndieCade uh, five years ago, maybe, that was uh, yeah. posted on Kotaku yeah. that like was very remarkable because it had all these principles. And you know, the remarkable part was, oh, oh my God, five years before the game came out, all of this sort of thought was in place. But yeah, you described wanting to, if uh, I can paraphrase, make a game that delivers that experience of epiphany regularly. And that was how I experienced it. It was almost as though, just as someone who's always loved puzzle games and has always played, you know, from LucasArts to Myst to everything else, um, it was as though the game isolated a particular flavor or sensation in that game that I always enjoyed, like distilled it down and then delivered it over and over again in a way that I found really intoxicating. Like to play the game and, and to start, you know, from the position of you look at this panel and you're like, well, I don't know what this means, but, oh, well, there's only three choices. It must be this way. And I've gained a little bit of information um, and come to a conclusion. And then to, like, have your level of understanding ascend over and over again, wordlessly through doing is uh, is just such a such a powerful experience and very, very, like, addictive in a way. I You know, me and other friends I actually talked about having to feel like we had to um, hold off on playing the game because we didn't want to rush through it and wanted to like savor the experience because the unfortunate thing about the game is that once you understand the entire language it's since the process of learning it of learning this symbolic nonverbal language is the fun part once you know it the game is is kind of exhausted and I, I can you know boot it up as I did this weekend to to you know prepare for this interview and walk around and look at the you know beautiful architecture and and have that experience but you know I won't actually be able to enjoy the game again 
at least not for maybe 10 years until I've forgotten. Maybe I for, you know, I finally will have forgotten all of the all of the details. Th- there is a little bit of replayability to individual puzzles, yes. which I know because at one point, um, you know, it's a very big game, so it takes a, took a long time to make and I'm sure. I designed a bunch of the puzzles and then went off and did a, a bunch of like just programming things or doing some of the difficult areas so like the end game big area was very complicated and yes that took like a year plus and wow so, so then i went back and it was like okay now it's time to start playing through the whole game and uh you know make sure it all still works and whereas i knew that part that you're talking about the the ideas right and so yes. i didn't have that surprise anymore the individual puzzles, many of them I had actually forgotten. And those ideas tend to be a little bit smaller, right? Because, you know, that's sort of the way it works is you get a little idea, a little idea, a bigger idea, a little idea, and then they all add up into something big. And that big thing that they add up to is probably what you remember. Mm-hmm. But the little the little bits uh, still, I got little bits of delight when I played them again, even though I designed it all. So there's a little bit of, I think, <laughs> replay, which is not to say that, that's what it's designed for. I mean, for sure, it's a, for the most part an initial play experience right. kind of a game. Yeah. Um, let me ask, before we get into some more of the sort of intellectual ideas behind the game, one, one thing that really struck me about it was the, um, was the architecture of, of the environments. Um, and I think architecture is, is a quality that's often underappreciated in, in games because, you know, they are architectural spaces uh, in that they're designed spaces that one moves through and inhabits, but we rarely talk about them, you know. I don't know if, like, the world of architecture criticism has, like, discovered video games yet the way that it, it should. But I, I found that uh, playing it, I was so struck by how precise all of the design of the island seemed to be. Like, it sort of seemed, it reminded me of being in a designed garden, like a Japanese or English garden, where every, it was like every little turn of the path, you come around it and you see a vista that's just so. Or if you, you know, look at this hill, the the flowers are arranged in such a way. Sometimes I would just be like, holy shit, look at this driftwood. It's so attractively <laughs> placed here on the beach, right? Uh, and then the buildings themselves are are so um, designed in such a way where there's, there's these interesting combinations of there'll be a metal corridor that suddenly becomes made of wood and suddenly there's a plant there and, and et cetera. And I was just curious about what your relationship was with, you know, that that sort of world of landscape architecture, architecture, if there were architects working on the game, just that world. Yeah, I definitely had no personal architecture experience, <laughs> um, apart from really liking, you know, some of the weirder architects like Labeus Woods or people like that. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we worked with uh, both some structural architects and landscape architects really? closely on the game for about three years wow. or three and a half years so all that stuff yeah was built pretty carefully you know we put we put little fastening joints on the supports that hold up the beams and um part of the reason for that is so it's a game about puzzle solving right Mm -hmm. and it's a game where the puzzle solving requires you to pay attention to what might be the pertinent facts or ideas or whatnot right Mm -hmm. and part of that involves uh, looking carefully at your environment, right? So as designers, we're drawing your attention to what's around you because it might be important. Hopefully, most of it's important in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't well, want to have we'll, a lot of random cruft or Baroque ornamentation that does nothing. Yeah, we'll get back to that, actually, because that's super interesting. But <laughs> um, but when you, when you, as a designer, ask somebody to bring their attention in a certain way, then you have to stand up to your end of the bargain and make sure that you put 
detail to the appropriate degree hmm. corresponding to the degree of attention that you're asking, right? If I'm asking you to leave no stone unturned and every time you turn over a stone, there's just like some crap there, it's then you as a player don't feel uh, like you're engaging in a worthwhile activity. It's like you're not exactly like you're smarter than the game, but the game is not catching up you're not in good hands with the game yeah, the game's not right? asking you uh, asking things of you that are valuable to do right yeah. and, a, and a lot of games actually do that right so so much to talk about i mean i worked <laughs> on this game for seven years yeah. <laughs> so th- there's a, there's a cascade of things for people's attention right so the the puzzle panels like you talked about at the beginning are let's say level one of that cascade i don't know this, mm-hmm. this is a well, those are the Not most the way prominent things in the environment. They're very clear. Everything that's a puzzle panel is very clear. Yeah, you always you always know what it is when you see it, yes. and you know how to solve it, and you know for sure when you have solved it. Mm-hmm. Almost always. Sometimes, yeah, they have multiple solutions, but you know, for the most part. But <laughs> yeah. usually, even when that's true, you yes. can tell. They're right? they're almost like perfect little test problems where the conditions are so clear that that one couldn't really be confused, and the only question is how one actually mm-hmm. arrives at the precise solution. Now. Interestingly, so those panels sort of follow what would classically be considered ideas of good game design, like where you clarify Mm -hmm. what the player is supposed to do and why and and all that. And except that I don't reward people for solving the puzzles. That's (laughs) that's a whole thing. You don't get a new outfit for the character. You just it unlocks another puzzle. No gold coins spout out of the thing (laughs) when you solve it. Um, But then what I find interesting is to build into the world layers beyond that that are mm. progressively less obvious to see and less obvious when you've done what you're supposed to. I'm doing air quotes as I say supposed mm-hmm. to. What you're supposed to do with them, right? And so there are multiple layers where by the time you get down to the bottom, there's some things in the world that you might notice that are interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like you notice them and, and that's the activity and the game is not going to acknowledge that you noticed it. Right. That's like the most vague. And between yes. that, there's a spectrum and the game yes. plays all over that spectrum. The, the last thing to say about that is um, mo- most people who are going to sit down and try to build a technically ambitious game with an open world that you can wander around, they try to make the world really big and impress you with like it's eight miles across. Right. And we did exactly the opposite thing. We tried to compact it and yes. pack it down into the smallest possible space to where it's it's almost Disneyland-like, right? Yes. Where the things are improbably close to each other for what they are. Um, yeah, the, the, the plains is right next to the desert, is right next <laughs> yeah. to the beach area. But that's part yeah. of what makes it so delightful is that you're wandering through – I mean, I played with headphones a lot of the time, and so you're wandering through a – a jungle and it's dark and it's or it's green and it feels wet and it you know has this particular character and then you round a little hill or step off the path and suddenly it's you know you're in the sunlight and there's you know yellow grass and and the whole character of the experience is is uh is changed like in a in an instant i found that you know the way all of those areas were were next to each other made it incredibly pleasing to walk around yeah um because we we wanted there to be a feeling of exploration, mm-hmm. and we wanted, but we wanted it to be high density exploration, like yes. you feel like you could see a lot of things in a, in a short amount of time, but also keeping the space small meant that we were able to lavish attention on each piece of the space mm-hmm. and make sure it's good. Right, we're a small team. If it had been even twice as large as it is, it would have been very hard for us to keep a consistent level of 
quality over everything, right? And so that that helps build that good hands feeling that I was talking about. I mean, I love that that the whole environment is you never go through a door with a loading screen. It's a yeah. completely continuous environment. And I was struck by how much, you know, I remember the end game or my memory of one piece of the end game is you go through it, you you solve it, and then you leave. And I was like, wait a second, the door I just left through, I'm back in an area, I'm in an under, uh, you know, a cave underneath some uh, some fronds. I've been here Spoilers. before. Yeah, that's a little spoiler. That's a little spoiler. But but it was like, I was like, how did, I couldn't even imagine how I got that deep into the space. You know, how the how the paths are. I've, I've been tunneling through this mountain that I previously had been walking around the entire time in a way that, it was almost like a magic trick. I was like, how did, I've never been, tele, I haven't been teleported. I haven't, you know, stepped through a door with a loading screen, but yet I'm back in a place that I didn't expect to be. Um, I always loved it when games do things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not thinking of any specific game, but just, I must have played some things back decades ago that did that. <laughs> and yes. I, was, I wanted to do it. In fact, there's a bigger one than you're talking about, actually, which mm. I don't want to spoil, but Yeah. I mean, my goal is to my goal is to get a little bit more spoilery as we go through this conversation, and to make it uh, we'll hopefully make it clear to the audience when anything yeah. is spoiled, uh, and you know, so maybe we'll get to a, a place of maximum spoiler spoilerity <laughs> in the conversation, and maybe okay. not, um, okay. but we're not quite there yet. So, my talking about the the themes of the game, what was most striking to me was how the uh, themes that I saw in it are were consistently expressed both through like explicitly and implicitly. And you mentioned before, uh, you know, observation and, and noticing the levels of noticing. And it seems to me that the the main activity in the game is noticing that in each of the, you know, whenever when, when you need to solve a puzzle, uh, it seems that when you're when you're looking at the puzzle saying, I don't know the answer yet, I can't figure it out, which happened to me plenty of times. There were puzzles that I uh, struggled with for four or five hours that once I realized, I, once I solved them, I was like, oh, that was so simple, right? And the answer was always that there was something nearby that either in the puzzle or in the immediate area that I had not yet noticed, that I simply hadn't seen. And uh, let's get from that into a slightly more spoilery territory. Throughout the game, there are these little audio logs scattered about that have uh, quotations uh, in them that sort of come from the world of Science and spirituality seem to be the two broad categories, and a lot of those seem to be on the same theme of of noticing or or learning or or trying to increase one's knowledge. And yeah, I'm curious about how you came to select those, uh, how you you know how you came to those thinkers, what your uh, relationship with them is. Ooh, well, it was a <laughs> it was a difficult process, um, and and it took years, right? I mean, I, I knew when I started designing this game in 2008, that's when I started. Wow, that, pre-financial crisis. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, sort of while that was happening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, I knew that that kind of thing was going to be in there, but I didn't really know exactly what. And a lot of those were finalized in late 2015. Really? So it was a seven-year process of really honing in on exactly what the flavor of those things was going to be and doing a lot of supplementary reading and, mm -hmm. and um, chasing down ideas through, you know, oh, this person referred to this thing and that refers to this other thing. And just sort of, it was actually, it would have been more, 
pretty fun if I didn't feel like I had so much work to do all the time. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, there's a lot of ways that you can look at what's in the recordings. But sure. one one way that I look at them is that they're all from people who take seriously this idea that that we can look at the world and understand the world. Mm-hmm. But they have very, very different ways of, of doing that, right? Mm-hmm. But they're all very serious about it, right? Yes. They're all serious people in pursuit of truth, we could say, mm-hmm. right? Whereas they certainly would not agree. Uh, I mean, in fact, the, the collection is curated um, such that many of these people wouldn't agree on yes. conclusions. Well, I mean, on a surface level, some of them are, uh, you know, there's there's almost a, a dialogue between atheism and theism, which I think is a, a very much on a surface level. But there's also a, a a theme of how one comes to know the world better or comes to know God better, I suppose, um, between them. There, there's a little bit of an atheism versus theism mm-hmm. thing going on, but it's not really so much that. Mm-hmm. Um just because when you start really getting into what smart people believe, any smart person in any category, whether they're a religious person or a scientific person, it's usually not particularly simple, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And it usually doesn't fit some kind of very easy us versus them narrative. And so one of the strings of, of – uh, or one of the families of quotes in the game – is from very very serious physicists, many of whom were, you know, key people in uh, the discovering and the understanding of quantum mechanics. Right, mm-hmm. which is when we first really realized that the picture of the world might not be like what we thought. You know, mm-hmm. sort of in the time between. You know, I mean, Einstein did his uh, his first relativity stuff in 1905, right? And uh, through about 1930-something, 1935 maybe, um, don't sue me if that's wrong. But, you know, like like by the mid-1930s, we were like full-on into getting that this was going to be really weird. Yeah. Right? Um, at least – so let me segue for a second, right? Um, uh, my training is as a computer scientist. You know, mm-hmm. I, I uh, went to school for that. And so – there's some kind of ambient culture of smart people and what they think and what they believe. Yes. Um, and it's probably a little bit different today than 20 years ago when I was in college and stuff. But I could I could sort of jadedly summarize that as like, well, you know, this is a modern day when obviously we have all this cool technology that works that people in the past didn't understand. And that all is due to science. And science is sort of the opposite of religion, to use a very dumb Mm-hmm. oversimplified idea yes. and therefore that proves that anything to do with religion is stupid and the smart people are all atheists <laughs> and right. et cetera, right? You can extrapolate from there and that I, th- I feel like that's still a prevailing cultural idea. I but, certainly grew up with it, yeah. But when you look back, it's not really true and, mm-hmm. and I say look back because those are, you know, a lot of the famous scientists are from in, in the 1900s because that's when all these big things happen but even scientists today, you look at a, a lot of these people have gone to great lengths to tell you what what they think about that. Like, what is the nature of existence, right? Mm-hmm. Whether, whether a particular scientist calls it God or just 
reality or something. And, and they tend to disagree on many of the finer points of things and sometimes on the not so finer points. Um, but it certainly is not the case that there's this kind of, um, if you're not an atheist, you're stupid idea, right? It's it's almost the opposite of that. There's there's a few um, very prominent atheists who are also great scientists, Richard mm-hmm. Feynman being one of the sure. prominent ones who gets a lot of sort of airtime in the game. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them really are, are not, right? And so, again, the, the goal was not to um, to convince somebody of any side. And, in fact, part of the goal was to maybe a little bit show that the idea of sides is kind of oversimplified because <laughs> nobody really lands cleanly on a side. So actually, right. um, some of my favorite quotes, the one that's coming to mind right this second is from William K. Clifford, who's a mathematician um, mm. in the 1800s. And uh, he there's, there's a quote in the game. You know, it's a parable about a guy uh, who owns a, a ship and he's doing... Uh, you know, people are paying for passage to travel across the ocean and right. live somewhere. And he just chooses to believe that the ship's going to be fine. Right. Mm-hmm. And the ship actually sinks and kills everybody. But he, you know, he believed in the ship, even <laughs> though it was wrong. And so he's not guilty. And Clifford says, no, he's guilty. Right. And yes. it totally that's a clearly a parable about, you know, belief in religious faith or dogma or, or blind something. faith. Yeah. The reason that's problematic is the word faith actually doesn't really mean what we think it means today. Mm. But we can get back to that in a second. (laughs) So it's obviously that, right? It's a parable saying, don't do that kind of thing, right? You're only justified in believing what you believe if your beliefs are well-founded by investigation and effort, right? Right. I don't actually put this in in the game at all, but um, William K. Clifford was what we would today call a pan-experientialist. Hmm. which is very different from an atheist viewpoint. He believed that inanimate objects are conscious. Wow. Right? And he, he came to that belief by this process of investigation, right? right. But, but at, at in his time, right, that would have been called atheism mm-hmm. because it's outside the realm of believing that there's a bearded man on mm-hmm. a throne who decides if you go to heaven or hell or whatever, right? I see. And so really uh, I was just interested in looking at the world, we're trying to understand the world and what conclusions can we come to. And then again, so that um, it's very easy to maybe like be a little bit pompous or talking down to people or something. So I, for the most part, tried to curate uh, pieces that had meant things personally to me. Mm -hmm. So some of the more modern um, pieces in the game are either things that at some time in my life I had seen and were important to me or that I I was present personally at a particular event at a particular time because I'm old enough that that's happened a few times now. (laughs) Um, Right, and I I think that's why I had the sense that when I played the game that it was, I mean, maybe meant to impart a worldview is is not quite right, but that I took a worldview from it uh, uh, perhaps just because it... Maybe only almost had this quality of a of a brain dump of your you know uh, feelings on on these issues. Um, in that the the quotations and the uh, to get a little bit more spoiler, there's a part in the game where you where there are video clips that you uh, that the player can watch as. Uh, yeah, that's I, not super spoilery. Yeah, that's yeah. not super spoilery, right? Yeah. But that is a it is a reward. I mean, that is one of the few rewards for solving the puzzles is yeah. is finding those things, and so. Uh, those seem to 
interact with the process of playing the game in in a really sort of spooky, interesting way that that I found myself actively trying to piece together over the course of the game um, in that so many of them seem to be about the the search for knowledge in ways that interacted with the process by one by which one solves puzzles in the game. Uh, to take an example, uh, there's a uh, one of the videos is by uh, do you pronounce it Gangaji? Gangaji? Gangaji. Gangaji. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, there's a, a clip from her speaking, and and her message to paraphrase very poorly is, um, you know, that you should stop uh, looking for what you want uh, because you already are what you want on a spiritual level. She's a spiritual teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, that one shouldn't be questing and striving and reaching so much as uh, looking at, you know, the present moment, the present experience and that you already are what you want. That seemed to interact with (laughs) the actual process of playing the game, which is that I'm trying to solve this goddamn puzzle. And how do I do it? And the fact is the 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 solution is always right there. Like you sort of already have it in in any time that you're looking at a puzzle. Um, Does that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not a mistake that uh, (laughs) there's on the one hand this very goal-oriented process. Right. Sort of – and it's never – you know, the the player is never told to do anything, right? But this nonverbal web of influence sort of guides you through doing all this stuff. Yes. And there's definitely – a, a current in the game of, of which that's one of the major pieces that is um, that is non goal oriented, right? That's about the importance of just experience, of paying attention to experience mm-hmm. and forgetting what you think your goal should be or is, mm-hmm. or what you ought to be doing. Um, where where are we in spoiler territory at this point? <laughs> let's go. Let's just go for it. Hopefully, okay, if anybody you, listening is intrigued enough that they can play, the, we're, we'll spoil some stuff. That yeah, if, you, if you're interested in the game, just stop listening and come back later. Go play it now. We'll and then, we'll ruin things that would be okay. great surprises. Maybe okay. So we're in full territory now. Yeah, full okay. spoiler territory. But I don't remember why I said that now. Um, well, okay. It's just to say that. Uh, so on the one hand, um, you know, there's many reasons why that's in the game. One of them, though, is that um, there are things in the game that you may or may not notice that the secret stuff, right, (laughs) that you may have an easier time noticing if you're not very focused on the next thing, right? So you're solving this series of panels, and it's like, okay, I did this one, and it leads me to the next one, and I did this one, and it leads me, right? And in the process of doing all that, you'll walk past stuff. That's staring you right in the face. Yes. That's that if you knew that you were looking for that thing would be just blindingly obvious. Right. Yes. And yet people don't see these things. Um, Sometimes never. Right. Sometimes they believe they finished the game and never see any of that stuff. Right. And other times um, at some point in the game, they'll have like a like I was going to say, say, uh, Let's say have a wow moment. I don't know if we can cuss on the podcast. Oh, you can. Yeah, of course you can. Well, some kind of like holy shit moment. Yes. Like what? What is that? And then you have this experience of like reinterpreting what this environment is that you're in, or what you're looking for, or what you're doing. Yes. Right. And it's a little bit of a. Um, I can't exactly say 
that it's metaphorical for mm. anything specific. It's sort of a metaphor, right? But it's also just sort of is what it is because it's interesting gameplay-wise. Yes, that I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth and imply that, you know, the entire game was, you know, designed to uh, be a metaphor, but I, I can certainly see how it's both successful gameplay and <laughs> it's a metaphor, in, in or at least it, it comes off that way to me. I mean, to go into... Uh, full. If I can describe the, in the full spoiler version, um, the uh, the thing that happens is that you you know come across these puzzles that are sort of hidden in the environment that require you to be looking in a particular place a particular way, and then it resolves itself into a puzzle shape that you can that you can solve. And it requires you to – it'll be like, you know, a piece of a fence and a piece of a leaf and a piece of a shadow all combine, if you're looking at them just the right way, to make this shape that you can solve. And I think the way that it relates to these topics to me is that it it requires you to even see them. You have to sort of flatten your experience. You have to stop seeing the objects as objects. You have to, uh, The tractor is the tractor. The, the ship is the ship, whatever. And just look at the shapes and they – they only work on the bare level of experience of of your visual you know view of the of the world and so they require you to stop and attend to your experience whereas before you were yeah moving very goal orientedly where's the next square panel that looks like the other panels that i can solve as soon as you have that experience at least certainly when i did you see the first one, you happen across it. You're like, wait, that looks like a puzzle. Oh, wait, there are puzzles hidden everywhere. And I have to be attending to the world that I'm in to see them. You're, you suddenly start moving through the game in a completely different way that to me, and I've, you know, I've only had a very superficial, uh, you know, interaction with anything approaching that, you know, I might call, uh, you know, Buddhism or meditation or anything like that. But it, the the word that came into my mind was mindfulness. You had to you have to suddenly start moving through the game mindfully in a way that you know is not where's the next panel? How do I solve this puzzle? But how you know what am I really experiencing at every moment in order to solve them? Um, th- at least that was my experience of it. I don't want to ask is that correct? But <laughs> you know. something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, uh, that's definitely. Um... So before I knew I was going to make this game, mm-hmm. I had an idea for an, a role-playing game. It was like a gestural spellcasting game, right? So you draw like a shape in the air, and that represents what spell you're going to cast. Mm-hmm. And I had recently been playing some games that had systems like this, and I was a little bit disappointed in how they worked. And so I wanted to do like my version of that. Mm-hmm. And all of these games, has there's some way that you learn a new spell, Right, if you're some wizard dude, and it's usually like you get a scroll and it's just got the new shape written on it, and then right. you practice that. And I was like, well, wouldn't it be a more powerful experience if you had to have this kind of, you know, less focused, broader minded perception mm-hmm. engaged in order to see those? And so, th- what I sort of viewed as the pinnacle moment for that game was that you were going to be, you know, questing around and, like, fighting monsters or whatever, and you end up on top of a mountain, and you look down, and the shape of this path that you had followed was a spell symbol, and Mm -hmm. you could figure that out or not, right? And then you'd have some powerful power or not, right? Yes. Which would have been a cool game. (laughs) Uh, But then one thing that I like to do is is focus, and I was worried that the game was going to be too big, and I was like, you know what, if the just the perception part is what I think is important, then why not just get rid rid of the other stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't really need monsters and, like, magic missile and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
a game probably would have sold well too. But, <laughs> People love Magic Mizzle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that's actually where the idea for this game came from was the, 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 I mean, I guess while I was saying all that, I was like, why am I going off on this story about like wizards and stuff? And the, the point was to say that that was the original idea was like looking down and seeing the shape. Right. And then all the rest of the game came out of that. It came from this idea to, to make a game based around perception or noticing. I mean, that certainly ties into the title, The Witness, right? Yeah. I mean, in terms of your, uh, you know, own thought or your own life or your own, you know, I don't know, quote, quote path that you're on is a phrase people sometimes use. Mm-hmm. Did that idea come across, uh, come to you exclusively as a game design idea or are there, is that a, you know, quality in your own life that is important to you that you wanted to express via game design oh it's very important to me um so in general i only find myself really motivated to work hard on things when i really believe in them for some reason right Mm -hmm. there has to be like some fire lit behind me to do stuff and so yes but before i was making my own video games in life when i was like trying to work for other people and stuff i was like a pretty crappy employee who would get (laughs) depressed and not really do good work and i i thought i had a really bad work work ethic or something and what it really was is that i need to believe in what i'm doing right Mm -hmm. and so you know where this game comes from is i'm i'm interested in the world um i'm interested in understanding it from many directions, right? I've always been, like when I was a kid, I was a very science and mathy kind of person and, you know, started programming when I was 10 years old or something, which was pretty early back then. It may not be that early now. (laughs) Um, But I've also been very interested in, you know, what is the meaning of the world? What is the ultimate nature of reality? And uh, I feel like science is very far from an answer to that mm-hmm. kind of a question. I mean, there's, you know, if we think about what, how science would say this is the meaning of the world or something is you might go back and like, oh, here's the Big Bang, the earliest moments of the universe, right? Or we're drilling down to a really small level and, and at some point, you know, you understand quantum electrodynamics and you zoom in really far and then you know the most basic rules and then you can extrapolate those upward mm-hmm. um, which actually doesn't really work. There's a Feynman lecture <laughs> in the game about how that doesn't work right. exactly. But um, so I think I might get this wrong, but I think it's James Jeans who has a, a quote about how that's nonsensical. He was an astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might actually have been Eddington who said this, but I think it's Jeans. And I believe it's on his Wikipedia page, actually. Uh, it's not in the game. But he says that that approach, if you're trying to understand the world, doesn't make sense because our modern understanding of physics is as if like it's a four dimensional, at least construct, right? It's space time Mm -hmm. and trying to understand the origin of this space time system as something within time doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so if you're looking for, let's personify and say, if you're looking for God, right? God doesn't exist within time because he had to make time, right? So <laughs> right. what happened, at, looking at what happened at the moment of the Big Bang and expecting that to tell you something about the nature of God right. or whatever you want to call the creation of the universe, yes. uh, he says, is like being in a painting and looking at the edge of the painting for the painter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. The painter's outside the painting, right? Right. And so as soon as you understand that, 
whether you have a scientific or a spiritual or religious view or whatever, a lot of arguments that people put forth suddenly seem completely nonsensical, right? Hmm. So there's, <laughs> so one, one of the classic questions um, in philosophy, right, this is sort of put forth as one of the big questions traditionally, is why is there something other than nothing, right? right? And uh, it, it's always just a cute thing to try and answer that question. And there have been a couple of physicists lately who attempt to answer that question, and they boil it all down, and they say, like, look, see, when you've got a space, then things will, you know, sort of magically congeal in polar opposite pairs that will at a later time, you know, re, right. you know, due to, due to vacuum energy and stuff. And it's like, well, okay, but that presumes this quite elaborate system existing with all these physical laws yes. to make that possible. And like, why would that even happen? Right. So it's just, it's sort of kicking the can down the road. Yes. Um, and it's funny, you know, so on the other side of it, right. One thing that, um, one thing that atheists like to point out that uh, religious people have done through history, and this is true, this is not to, to bag on atheists, but there's this thing called the, the God of the gaps, right? Which mm -hmm. is just, um, you know, some people will say, well, this part of the universe is not understandable. It's God works there. And then 100 years later, we understand more and we can explain that. And they're like, OK, but God is the part just past that, right? <laughs> um and and so it's sort of used uh, within atheist, atheist circles as a reason to say, like, look, at, at any point, if you say this part is mysterious and due to God, we're going to understand it later. So you might as well just give up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, well, but the opposite thing happens where, well, it's not exactly the opposite thing, but um, it's it's analogous in some way if you allow some kind of mirror and inversion transforms on the idea where you understand more and more about the workings of the world, but it doesn't actually tell you anything about what's beyond the world mm -hmm. or what could have made the world. Right. Right. Um, another understanding, and again, this is, uh, it's a, it's a quite nuanced, uh, understanding that spiritual people have had through the ages, mm -hmm. right. In many, many traditions, um, that is, is not quite, I would say, well understood either by modern religious people or by people who are criticizing hmm. modern religion, right? Which is that whatever is the the cause of the world that we're in or, or whatever made it happen or makes it happen. You know, I said a moment ago that, that it kind of has to be outside because how could something in, in the universe make the universe? It doesn't make any sense, right? right? What does it mean for something to be outside the universe? Well, uh, like everything that we understand has to do with the universe, right? Mm -hmm. All our ideas about logic and causality and meaning and things that make sense are all based on our observation of this system of the world that mm -hmm. behaves in a certain way. Yes. And so if you're going to talk about God being outside that system, then God must be something that doesn't conform to laws of logic, mm -hmm. that or not must be, but probably <laughs> doesn't conform to laws of logic, doesn't make sense, doesn't uh, proceed rationally, right? Because those are all right. smaller ideas within this. I haven't explained that very well at all. It's, <laughs> I think, a, it's a very nuanced idea, right? I, I think I uh, – well, uh, can I uh, – let, let, let me ask you this yeah, unless go. you find it again. No, keep going. It might pop back. <laughs> That's fine. We can go back there. Um, something that really struck me uh, – 
was uh, I was really taken by the lecture by Rupert Spira in the uh, in the witness, um, yeah. which is one of the longer ones, about half an hour, I think. I was actually there in person for that. Which you were is there why in person, the yeah. Really? Yeah. Like, what's your relationship with his work? I'm curious. Um, I, I respect him a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- to get a little more concrete about what he was saying, he was basically sure. um, the the video in the game is uh, a contemplation of what existence is like mm-hmm. from a, uh, a, I don't exactly want to call it a spiritual perspective because a, a lot of times when people hear the word spirituality, they think of a lot of baggage that is often yeah, attached to spirituality. Stuff, yeah. But this is really, um, it's more like, look, if you just observe what it's like to be a conscious human being right, and not allow yourself to jump to conclusions that you usually jump to, right? Let's let's try and look at some alternative conclusions that might be drawn from from first principles, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is I don't want to say exactly a scientific way to look at things. It almost is. Um it's pretty close. It's an engagement with what you, people usually think of as spiritual topics that is based only on observation and, you know, not believing what people Mm -hmm. tell you, you know, not towing some ideological uh, dogmatic line, right? It's just about observation and conclusion. And that's really interesting to me. And it turns out that, again, that's a tradition that goes back thousands of years. Um, There's many traditions like that. And they tend to kind of get buried because... Um, in spiritual and religious circles, people seem to like believing stories and mm-hmm. believing rituals and and things. But it's it's very interesting to find that there are living traditions that eschew all that stuff and say like, no, look, what what is really going on? Yeah, it, it his it really struck me because he. Uh, my understanding is he he's uh, the kind of fellow who. Uh, studied with a lot of uh eastern uh you know in religious tradition but um the the lecture that he gives is sort of stripped away from from any of that it it almost doesn't even sound if you heard it fresh you'd it's not immediately clear that it's religious or spiritual in any way um and he's and basically what he does is he says you know uh you know all you are is this sort of open presence of awareness that that you're that simply all it is to be is to be aware Right. Uh, that seems to be his yeah, okay, so basic, to, 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 basic conclusion. It's, it's very much just it sort of starts from the same point as Descartes almost. Like I experience, I, I have awareness. Um, and then from that draws the conclusion that, uh, that, that one can't even conclude that death would be real because one's only experience is of awareness, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, um, you know, just, just to go – so that this will be a little bit less abstract. You know, one, <laughs> yes, please. I, I don't remember if he says exactly this in that, but but a typical thing, typical exercise might be, you know, just notice right now what it's like to be aware, right? There's a certain character to it. So obviously, there's a certain liveness to it, right? So, right? so if you ask yourself the question, am I aware, you can like refer to your conscious experience and say yes, right? You ask people that, they don't say no, they say yes, because there's there's something that they're referring back to, right? Now, if you if you remember some earlier moment, right? Like, oh, when I was getting breakfast this morning or when I was trying to find parking to come here and do the podcast or something, right? So that's a memory. 
And my only experience of that time is a memory that occurs now, mm-hmm. right? If I want to try and experience an hour ago, I can't do it, right? Now, this sounds stupid on the one hand, <laughs> right. because of course you can't like go back in time with your mind, right? But on the other hand, just deeply realizing the character of that, just observing what conscious experience is like is really worth a lot and can really <laughs> um, – I've seen a lot of I've read a lot of philosophy on like what it's like to be conscious or or or, or what what, you know, philosophers trying to explain consciousness who have off, obviously never even done that exercise mm-hmm. or meditated or anything. Because, for example, uh, consciousness often gets conflated with thought. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you when you take a very just aware meditative stance, you can see your thoughts come and go and you can notice that consciousness is there. The whole time, the right. thoughts show up and the thoughts leave. So it's different from that, right? Right. And then you mentioned Descartes. People sort of – I don't know if it's a misinterpretation of what he thought or he actually thought this. But, he, you know, his, the famous quotation of his is, I think, therefore I am. And so people attach right. to the modern conception of I think, which is – I don't know how related that is to what he was thinking or what mm-hmm. he had in mind when he wrote that, right? But – you know, you get these Western philosophers who try to explain consciousness by explaining thinking and the process of thoughts, when in mm-hmm. fact, the question is actually much deeper, right? Um, much deeper because there's this basic experience that sort of precedes thought yeah. that can't really be explained. So you could maybe say I program an AI on a computer and there's like data structures representing thoughts that like go through the thing. And so you could sort of I mean, that's a really hard thing to program. We don't really know how to do it. But you could imagine that, (laughs) right? right? But I can't exactly imagine how that has the same experience that I do because I don't know how that awareness – I don't know with my rational mind how that awareness happens, right? Yes. That's the – I mean, that's the uh, sort of fundamental mind-body problem, right? I studied this in in school where the – it's the – you know the dualism materialism problem in uh philosophy of mind where you know how can a how can a material substance you know it's it's the it, it, there is something that it is like to be a thing that seems to be different than the physical uh existence of any one thing um i guess what really struck me was the um you know, Spira, I, I love the way he, he talks about it. He describes consciousness as being an empty room or being a room that things happen within, you know. Yeah. And so so consciousness is open or awareness is open because the room has no control over what goes in and out. And it's also peaceful because nothing that happens in the room can disturb the can disturb the room, uh, which is a wonderful, very uh, soothing, soothing prospect, you know. Uh, yeah. And so, so the reason, uh, well, one of many reasons why that's in the game. Right. Is because it's a sort of inversion of what's the sort of current Western view of the world. You know, the tradition that I kind of came out of when I was in college and stuff, Mm -hmm. when that tradition is something like, you know, there's atoms and they do stuff and there's physical laws. And then there's a brain that is a bunch of atoms jiggling and doing stuff. And then somehow consciousness happens inside the brain. And we don't exactly know how, but we're <laughs> figuring it out, and eventually right. we'll know, right? Yes. So that's that's sort of the current, let's say, Western. Yeah. That's like view. what Daniel Dennett would tell you, probably, right? Well, he's even 
stricter. Dennett would, I mean, he's <laughs> eliminative, right? So he would say, like, consciousness doesn't even really exist. You're just kind of fooling yourself a little bit. Yes. That's like what Hofstadter would maybe say. He's okay. not as he's not as much of a hardliner. Okay. I don't know. I Don't let me put words in either of their mouths. But yeah. that's my picture of... Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's what most people think. It's the implicit assumption behind most, you know, if you... Uh, there's all this research that is getting funded right now about understanding consciousness and mm-hmm. like what your brain does. And the underlying assumption of all of that is that consciousness is somehow a computation performed by the brain, right? Mm-hmm. And what Rupert Spira and certain other people, um, including some several physicists from <laughs> the mm-hmm. dawn of quantum mechanics, um, <laughs> the stance that they take is actually from the other direction. It's saying, well, actually the primary datum that you have, datum is a little bit of a scientific word, but the the primary thing that you know is this conscious experience, right? right? And then anything that you think you understand about the world is something that came in that way. Yes. Right? So if you are doing a science experiment and you measure the temperature of a gas, you can apply PV equals NRT, right? Mm-hmm. You saw the, the <laughs> thermometer, right? Right. And... It's not just that, like, photons entered your eye to register, but, like, you were aware of that, right? And and so anything that we understand about the world in this view is secondary to the existence of consciousness in the first place, right? And mm-hmm. is less important than it. And from that point of view, it's nonsensical to say that computation or that computation in a physical brain produces a consciousness because in fact it's sort of the consciousness that produces the right physical sensations right it's like right? if you're when you're talking about which is it's almost an argument over what's the base level of reality is the base level of reality a physical substance and then you say well i'm just coming out of this physical yeah. substance in a in some way that's all consciousness is or do you say do you privilege consciousness as being the first uh the primary substance um, now, now, all that is just to say that in the game, I do not see it as my agenda to convince people to think one <laughs> way or the other, right? But there's a dialogue I, happening in the game. It, it's very interesting to me to take these ideas seriously and just mm-hmm. look at them. And like, what, what is this idea? How do I respond to it? How do I see it as being linked to the other ideas? Because it's very rewarding to do that mm-hmm. um, compared to... Again, this kind of us versus them mentality or whatever that happens that I don't find particularly illuminating or worthwhile. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's. Oh, you know, I, I can I can link back to something I said earlier. Great. Right. So I said earlier um, that the word faith is wrong. Right. And I can use this to illustrate why the us versus them mentality is really fruitless. Right. So if I'm going to put myself on the atheist side for a second, which is not exactly where I land. I mean, I land somewhere that's not really defined by those borders. Right. right. But but so, you know, I can say, well, look, and this also this also finishes the other thing I was saying about science being very powerful. Right. So the sort of the modern atheist point of view is like, well, uh, science is super powerful. It's going to explain everything eventually or even if it doesn't. You could sort of extrapolate the kind of thing that it tells us, and that sort of gives you the nature of the universe, right? And you shouldn't believe the scientific method is that you shouldn't believe anything that is not 
verified by experiment and by direct experience, yeah. right? And this idea that there's a, a bearded guy in a throne who's going to make you go to hell if you masturbated is certainly not uh, <laughs> validated by direct experience. Yes. And so it's goofy and stupid, right? Whereas those religious people over there say you should have faith that if you believe hard enough in things that you've never seen, then you'll go to heaven, right? Yeah. That's sort of the, That's the in caricature. a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and it's not so much a character so, caricature sometimes, like, you yes. know. Uh, but it's a little bit of talking past each other and a little bit not, right? Because sort of what that's addressing is the maybe a folk religious understanding or one that's not that sophisticated, mm -hmm. which, to be fair, a f number of people have, yeah. right? Um, but but, but, but it's, it's rooted in traditions that are from much deeper thinkers who had much more nuanced understandings. Mm -hmm. And over time, some things have been distorted. And so when, it, when, an atheist thing, when an atheist says you should have proof, not faith, right, it's using this modern word faith that's been distorted, right? Mm -hmm. so, so faith now we think means believing something that you've never seen proof for, right? Mm -hmm. Where in fact, uh, <laughs> and this is a hard to explain what it actually means because we sort of have lost exactly the language to talk about it. But imagine you were exploring a, a subjective experience, right? In, in the way that we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. and you had some kind of amazing enlightenment experience or something, and you saw the nature of the world as it truly is, or, or right. you had a feeling of it or something like that. Right. You have a, a revelatory um, experience. Faith in the old sense of the word, is related to that experience and that feeling, right? Mm. It's It means carrying that feeling forward into your life and remembering the thing that you saw and keeping true to it, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, like faith in the sense of a relationship is still keeps that modern sense of like, I'm keeping true to this partner that I have. Oh, uh, yeah, right? keeping faith, yeah. And And that's what that word originally meant. It was like, yeah, you saw this thing. Just remember that and believe it and and keep with it, right? Huh. And so so it's actually about you saw proof of something. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about believing things in the future that you've never seen. It's about remembering and keeping things that, that you've seen. And so it's a very difficult situation because nobody who wants to convince you that the world is ultimately material and, and of not a spiritual nature at all is going to go read those guys to come to this very nuanced understanding of like what these viewpoints were. Yeah. Um, well, I'm here talking to Jonathan Blow, the developer of The Witness. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Mugs, shirts, stickers, patches, tanks, and more are yours for the purchasing at maxfunstore.com. Hey, you already love the podcasts, so why not take this to the next level and outfit your home and bod with our merch? MaxFunStore.com, because if you have to wear a shirt, it should be one of ours. Welcome back to Anna Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to video game developer Jonathan Blow. Well, I think I think what the game did for me was I, uh, you know, I certainly am rooted in that Western, you know, tradition. Um, you know, I like I often identify as an atheist, I suppose, if I were to be asked on a census form. But, you know, there's certainly, you know, many, many aspects of that 
culture that are that are very you know trivial and are, are sort of that character the caricature that you describe. Um, and but there was a time in my life when I was you know more interested in you know I. I you know, flirted with reading Buddhist thinkers, you know, early in college, as, as I think many people do. But um, the game sort of uh, brought me back to that, you know, that way of thinking. Rupert, Rupert Spira uh, made me think of the questions that I asked myself when I was, you know, 18 years old about the nature of reality. Um, and I think those are really valuable. I, you know, it's it's a broader view of the question. I, I also think that the goal of my life is to, uh, you know, understand the true nature of reality. I relate to that very strongly. And uh, those, you know, thinkers in those traditions, like, you know, do have a lot to say on that score. And, and it was, uh, I suppose that's the way I came away from the game. A different person was was revaluing those thinkers and traditions. And it was very startling to have that experience through gameplay, through through not, you know, not through an essay. You know, the quotations are slight, you know, the 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 videos are enigmatic and, you know, there's not there's not that many of them. But to feel like I was being, you know, that that sort of mental door was being opened through the process of solving puzzles was extremely powerful. Right on. <laughs> uh, you know, what you said reminded me of something. Yes, I, I had a similar experience. You know, I went to college. Uh, it's sort of a time when we're thinking about, I don't know, it's sort of a time when you're figuring out what your life is like and yes. you're really investigating, right? And I did a thing like that where I would sort of visit the college bookstore and I'd say, oh, this is a Buddhist text. And, you know, I kind of liked Zen because there were funny stories in Zen. Um, but I was deeply suspicious of Buddhism, for example, but many religious traditions, um, for reasons that I think many smart people will identify with. Like you can look at, like I was raised Christian and we went to church every Sunday and I don't really believe that stuff, at least not not in the way that I was raised to, right? Mm -hmm. Me um, as well. And, you know, if you're a smart person and you're growing up, you can see, okay, the reason why I went to this church is because I was born here. And if I was born on the other side of the world, I would have gone to like a mosque or something, right? Mm -hmm. And believed other things. It's, so you, you should be able to see that right away, yes. right? Boom. For anyone who's a reasonable thinker and who wants to understand the world really and not just be told things, right. you should be deeply suspicious then of anything that depends on where you happen to be born yes. or anything like that, right? Because what it's just a relativity <laughs> argument to me. I, I can't even go into it more. Like either you see it or you don't, right? Yes. So there's that. Um, and then the other thing that you notice and uh, is that religions are always, always almost always uh, based on a sales pitch, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, for Christianity, it was like, well, you know, you're you're going to go to heaven if you're a good person. Yes. And if you follow these rules and stuff. Yes. Right. Or that this life is not this life is not the true life, that the true life is later. Yeah. Um, or and, and so the sales pitch that I detected from Buddhism um, was about suffering and eliminating suffering. Right. Yes. Like Buddhists won't stop talking about suffering. Like, yes. they, they just talk about it all the time. And I found myself very distrustful of that. Now, Zen doesn't do that so much, which is maybe why I, I liked it more. Zen was more like funny stories about mm -hmm. realizing something when somebody hit you on the head really hard. <laughs> um, you know. Um, yeah, there's something about Zen that appeals more to skeptical Western atheists in a way. Yeah, but so it took a long time in my life before I found these kinds of investigations that are not based on a sales pitch, mm -hmm. right? that are really just about someone wants to show you a perspective of 
how to uh, how to look at things, right? How, what is a way that I can look at consciousness, for example, that maybe I haven't thought of? Mm-hmm. And then either you're interested in that or not, right? And it's not it's not a like a, you'll go to heaven if you notice that you're aware or something like that. It's just um, it just is what it is, right? And so the world being what it is and being full of everyone blaring at you all the time about what to believe and stuff, it took a while in life for me to stumble upon that kind of thing. But when I did, uh, it affected me greatly. I was like, oh, this is very interesting, right? This is the kind of thing, this is not the kind of thing that I've been pushing away all my life because I know it's, Mm -hmm. you know, stupid or relative or pointless or whatever, right? This is like, oh, this is a different thing. And in fact, though, that kind of thing has been around for a very, 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 very long time. Yes. And it's just hard to find sometimes because the world is noisy. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I was interested enough about that to make it an important part of the game. Yeah. Yeah. But is that uh, interest, you know, animate why you make the game? Or are you also just, hey, I'm just interested in, in giving people a, a fun game experience and then that and then that becomes a piece of it or well it's sort of both i mean the original motivation was like i said to have that experience of noticing things yes. that you wouldn't normally notice um but then you start building it and uh you know i started making these puzzles and stuff and i don't know exactly what the initial leap was but it was something about will give you a reason to be drawing all these lines all the time and then mm-hmm. that gives you a pattern to notice right mm-hmm. and just those started being very interesting, right? right. Um, it was even, uh, it might have even been a more interesting pursuit for me to come up with those than it even is to play. Uh, maybe not because there's a lot of frustration and dead ends. And so, although maybe there is when you play too. <laughs> um, but so then it starts being an exploration of the different forms that ideas and communication can take. And that was very fascinating to me. And so it links back to these ideas that we've been talking about the whole time. But (laughs) hopefully anybody (laughs) listening right now paid attention and like actually played the game before listening this far, right? But all this stuff that we've been talking about really is kind of in the background of the game. It's not, right? What's in the foreground is these puzzles and that, that you... Uh, investigate and solve. And so they had to be very interesting, right? And um, I, I had a great time making them. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it back down to the level of the of the game out of our sort of <laughs> extremely heady spot where we're discussing the nature of consciousness and experience and, and those things. Um, I'm very curious, uh, and I feel, I asked a couple friends, you know, hey, what, you know, who played the game? Like, what questions, you know, do you have? And I think something that a lot of people are interested in is what is the the process itself of of designing the puzzles like almost physically i'm curious because the puzzles by themselves if you took the puzzles out and you put them just into a book of puzzles look here's you know jonathan's 500 mazes they would be exceptional puzzles simply by themselves and some of them some of the later ones especially in the end game are incredibly inventive the one where you're you draw a path and then walk along it and then have to double back and draw a new solution that doesn't interfere with the old one. Do that three or four times. I was like, <laughs> that's the kind of thing where it's, you know, it was such it, it felt so virtuoso to me. So I'm curious how just how one goes about designing such a thing. That is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a there's a basic thing going on, though, in all the puzzles. And it has to do with what we spoke of earlier about. Um, increasing your understanding of what's happening, right? right? So there, 
in order for that to happen, the puzzles can't just be like random stuff, right? Yeah. They each have to present to you an idea. So, um, you know, you come up to a group of puzzles and each one is like, gives you a little nugget, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, th- and it might be as simple as, oh, these these shapes are a thing now. <laughs> and then the next one is like, uh, now they're in a different position relative to each other. Does What does that mean? And mm-hmm. does that matter? And um, and then the the explanation or the the idea builds up like a snowball as it rolls and gets right. bigger and bigger to the point where after you're done with any particular area in the game, if someone were to walk up to you and ask what or, or you're on the last puzzle, right, of a mm-hmm. particular area, someone comes up and asks you, what are you trying to do? And then you try to explain to them. <laughs> it would be like a paragraph long explanation. Yes. Right? And so these puzzles are like nonverbal sentences. Yes. Strung together in nonverbal paragraphs. Yes. And um, that's what that's what what's remarkable about them because one feels as though you're having a I mean a lot of people describe it this way that that they're having a conversation with Jonathan Blow it, through the form the nonverbal form of puzzles to the extent that a few of the puzzles made me laugh out loud because they read to me as a and speaking as a comedian they read to me this one's a joke and there's there are, not a word in it yeah there know? are jokes in the game for sure <laughs> which is incredible um yeah I, and that was just fun to discover like yes. oh you can make a joke in yes. the middle of this sequence right that was that was really fun yes so you can just um, imagine the difference of how the puzzles would feel if they were just a bunch of randomly generated stuff. Yeah. In fact, you may know how that feels like because that is in the game <laughs> there, also. There are a bunch of random – it's like the final challenges. Here's here's all the puzzles you did before. Here they are randomized yeah. and you have to do it on the fly without being able to practice. And, and, and that's more traditionally game-like yes. in that – those puzzles, I mean, well, it's the first time or two that you enter that area, you can sort of suss out what the ideas are. But once you get the ideas, it's more about a standard difficulty challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And so yes. the key to the game being inter- interesting, probably for a lot of people, is that it's not just an arbitrary difficulty challenge. It's that there is this flow of ideas. And even if you don't m- really consciously understand what any particular idea is, I think you feel it when you're trying to solve something because because there's maybe just a feature that you pick up on about like, oh, this positioning is weird or something, right? And there's something to wrestle with even while you don't understand exactly what's going on. Right. And so the process of designing those usually started with the idea. Actually, there's two directions it can go. One is to start with the idea and then ask, how do I illustrate this? Or you can start at the other end from first principles and say, here's a way that something could behave, like a particular symbol or something, or a way mm-hmm. that you could get the information about what the right answer is. And then then I might just sit there with a notebook and do experiments about like what mm-hmm. what interesting consequences happen from there, right? And then once I find one, then I might switch to top down again and say, oh, What's another thing like that that might also happen? Let mm-hmm. me see if I can make that happen, right? Hmm. So there's a there's an interplay between making things happen as a designer and discovering what's there in the... As a consequence of the original uh, yeah, design? which is almost like what mathematicians do, right? It's mm-hmm. like you take some axioms and then you extrapolate out all the mathematical facts that are true 
provable from those axioms, right? right? It's sort of the same thing, but in a puzzle design sense. Sounds a little bit. I mean, just to relate to what I do in terms of in terms of comedy, the sort of one of the basic things in comedy writing is you start with the situation and you follow through on the consequences. Well, if this is true, what else is true? And you and you find these sort of permutations that are recognizably part of the original thing, but are still surprising. That's that's at least the link I I somewhat see. But it's true. How would I? <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to figure out how how you would describe coming coming up with those permutations apart from what you just described. Yeah, and then um that leads to a lot of second order features I would say, right? So if I was going to talk about how games usually get designed, mm-hmm. right? There's, you know, there's some kind of a difficulty ramp that they have in pacing where the idea is you start slow and easy and then you get more and more difficult. And I'm drawing a little curve going upward with my hand as I say this, right? And then the end is usually pretty hard or something. Yes. Um, and people mess with that a little bit sometimes, but that's the general way that games get designed, yes. right? Um, because the puzzles in this game are not primarily there to be difficulty challenges, although it's fun when they are. Like, some puzzles are really hard. Yes. But some are really easy, you know? And... Um, I found that the best thing was to let there be a more organic flow of just whatever's going on right now. Just let that happen. So sometimes there'll be five or six in a row that are all pretty easy, and you zip through them in 20 to 50 seconds. Right. Feels great. But it's still interesting because those ideas are building up, right? Right. And then you hit one, and it's like hard all of a sudden. And it's like, wow, I just hit a wall. You know, what? how do I even go about this? I don't understand. Right. And then that's an interesting gear shift to, to have. And so it's really counter to decades of game design, what I'm doing about the pacing and the um, hmm. just the distribution of puzzles there. It's so strange because sometimes uh, you talked in that... Um in that indicate talk about not wanting about saying oh the player should feel smart as being a disease in game design you want them to actually be smart and i kept going back and forth when i was playing the game between f- sometimes you know feeling like oh i've learned something i'm i'm you know uh i've gained something or i'm proud of myself for doing this and then there are other times when i look back at it i'm like i don't i don't know if i did anything intelligent at all i think i just i think it was all it almost felt like it all flowed like because the information was always there you know like like it's it's this interesting dichotomy between uh feeling like you know you're a genius for solving a puzzle and then going well no this was this was there the whole time well i think even in those latter cases you got to give yourself a little credit um because <laughs> some people try to solve something that you found totally easy and they just don't get it and yeah. they just flail hard on that right yes. like everybody picks up on different things and um, everybody uh, finds different things difficult. Yes. And that that was also interesting as a designer because how do you make a game that's non-linear and that accommodates <laughs> right. all this? But yeah, going back to the feeling smart thing, I think it's great when people feel smart legitimately, mm-hmm. right? What I don't like is the very common tendency now for games to treat people like babies right yes oh my god you shook your rattle that's so amazing you know (laughs) good boy right right it's just it's really kind of offensive Um, but that's basically like almost every game on ios is that yeah for example right it's like you do the trivial thing for the first level and the fireworks go off and it's like (laughs) congratulations and here's some coins right and then you go to the next and and it's like 50 levels before you're doing anything interesting right yes and I, I, that bothers me. Yes. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, 
I appreciate in life when I'm treated like an intelligent person. And so yeah. when I design a game, um, again, it's it's I'm designing the kind of thing that I would appreciate. So I'm yes. designing for somebody who's an intelligent person and who who can be responsible for themselves a little bit mm -hmm. and uh, is an adult or young adult, you know, <laughs> depending and can can figure things out and can yeah. can make their way. Well, that that's what I meant about it feeling, you know, when I when I played it I didn't necessarily feel like I'm a genius. I mean, you know, I uh, I'm proud of myself I solved the rusty boat puzzle, you know. Oh, good I'm, job. I, I am proud. That was hard. I've solved it legitimately and uh, and I was so proud and I I was streaming on Twitch when I did and I saved the stream. The proof. Yes, the proof and just so I would have me going, "Yes!" like which is the most ridiculous you ever feel as a game player when you're going yes alone in your couch. <laughs> uh, but I, ha you know, I have footage of it, and so I'm proud of that because that, you know, like, uh, you know, that one is is actually uh, very difficult. But but for most of it, it was a matter of to solve every puzzle. The game isn't isn't feeding anything. It's it, it you know it's not like. Uh, like an RPG where you feel like you're making progress, but really the game is just leveling your stats and leveling the monster stats. You know what I mean? And yeah. so the name, the game never actually gets harder. It never asks any more of you. You know, the game is asking things of of the player um, with the witnesses, uh, yeah. but the thing it's asking them is just like, just look at what's right there. Even though it's it's difficult, it doesn't seem like you need to be a special type of person to do well at it or to come in with a special suite of ideas. You just need to, like, look at the first panel. Well, what does the first panel tell you? And then look at the second panel. Well, what does the second panel tell you? Um, so it's that, that's why it seems to have this odd, interesting dichotomy between being very, very simple yet very difficult at the same time. Yeah. Um, the, the part of the simplification was interesting to me as a game designer, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a lot of classic ideas in game design that... Uh, for example, you know, there's you you pace the player's experience by having like some locked doors or something, and you need to find a key to get through the door, and the key like goes in your inventory, which is a little pouch on the side here, mm -hmm. and you can like get it out later and open the door. Um, and what happens in the witness is that exists, but the key is not a physical object, right? So there's no interface to carrying anything in this game. Yes. The key is just, did you understand something somewhere? And then do you recognize that that's at play over here? And then you can unlock the door, right? Yeah. And so the puzzle that you mentioned actually um, pulls in at least two relatively obscure ideas from other places completely across. It's like a door with like two or three keyholes in it. Yes. And you have to like bring all those keys and realize that those are the ones that fit yes. and like put them in and yes. turn it. And I just thought that was cool, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the ideas is, like, only happens for, like, three panels somewhere in the game, right? Um, <laughs> I don't want to – well, I guess we're already full spoilers, but it doesn't matter, you know? <laughs> it's really something that – like, some people get confused. Like, they think, oh, this puzzle is broken again yes. right? because I can't move here. Yes. And it's like, well, no, if you remember – that one thing 20 hours ago yes, when you're playing. I remember that. It was very confusing the first <laughs> yeah. time I encountered it. And then when I, I figured out that moment of what that invisible line yeah, was. Yeah, by, by playing with it a little bit, you can be like, oh, wait, there's kind of a shape yes. going on sort of and, and figure it out yes. and remind yourself. Uh, the Well, I think that's what's remarkable about it is that you is that you carry what you need 
to the keys are unlocked by things that that happen in to you the player like like i it's not that my my character got an item it's like yeah. i got an item and the item was knowledge and that's you know um, and that just makes it more real right yes. it's less pretend yes you know and that's how you get uh, I, I, one of the most beautiful things about the game is the way you get to the final end game is by solving a puzzle that was right at the beginning in a, this is the ultimately spoilery <coughs> you, okay you uh, we won't go that far no it's fine i mean if people look on youtube they'll find yes. that and stuff but, but that's but... such a beautiful that's such a beautiful idea um the the game like many other adventure games you have the question of what is the island and my interpretation of the of the ending is that the answer is that it's a game <laughs> that that was created by people in the world of of the game and i found the self reflexivity really interesting um yeah i mean if we're going to go full plot spoilers i mean there's hardly a plot to the game at yes. all right so but but in as much as there can be plot spoilers right it is something like that going on where mm-hmm. there's um you know, as as technology advances, people find new ways of exploring what is the world about, right? And so you could imagine making some combination of like a game plus brain stimulation hardware or something to put you in kind of a trance-like state and to encourage certain modes of thought, right? Or to re recondition or repattern certain mm-hmm. kinds of thought. And so something like that is is going on in the, in the plot of the game such as it is uh, I, I, w- I won't I won't press you any further I just uh, I, I very much enjoyed the way the it was almost as though the the answer to the question what is what is the island is the same as the other questions which is that well it's what was here all along <laughs> it's you know um, let me uh, close with this uh, what what are you playing currently that you're that you're really enjoying oh wow I know you recommended Steven Sausage Roll, which Steven I Steven Sausage loved. Roll is amazing. It's very hard. Yes. It's a very difficult puzzle game. Um, it hasn't gotten much love and attention from the world. Yeah, it got um, a bit of good critical press. But it is so I, I think it may be the best puzzle game of all time. Um, <laughs> it's just the most beautifully designed puzzles and if you're interested in in that way that i was saying it's it's interesting when puzzles have ideas behind them and are yes. just arbitrary difficulty challenges steven sausage roll is completely built that way yes um where you start and it's a very simple conceit like i'm rolling sausages around to cook them and then you know that builds and builds and it it goes through such a wonderful set of permutations of ideas it goes to surprising places that you wouldn't have expected yes you had moments of i'm just hitting a wall and i don't know how to solve this and then you realize that something was possible that you had never noticed before and it's just beautiful and uh i i wish more people would play that game. i i played it on your it, on your recommendation and on some other people's recommendations that um and yeah i found it uh, especially right after playing the witness i found my interaction with it as a puzzle game was really fascinating because you as opposed to hmm as opposed to the witness where i felt like every time i encountered a puzzle i i usually felt like i had the tools to solve it you know with Steven Sausage Roll, every single puzzle I will encounter, and I would say, this is impossible. There isn't even enough even enough space to move this sausage around. And <laughs> yeah, then, at the start of the game, it took me like 25 minutes before yes, I solved anything. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of the most aggressively impenetrable games, and then the so many of the solutions are sort of sort of humorously clumsy. Like it's, I don't know. It's really it, it's really of a of a piece. It's um, a pretty funny, quirky game. How far have you gotten? Did you get? I to think the I got to level or world 
I, cold was the name. Oh, of it. Like all right, four or five. Okay, maybe, so you, like you did not give up at the Tower of Sausages. Oh no, I didn't. That <laughs> okay, was good. that was almost. I almost gave up because you encountered that puzzle. And you're like this. Wait, is how how am I even supposed to? There's a Tower of Sausages. How am I even supposed to begin this? Guys, that's a massive spoiler. By the for way, for those who are listening at home, that uh, <laughs> this Tower of Sausages puzzle is a real doozy. But and then yeah, when I solved it, yeah. I was so proud of myself. Um, right on. Uh, well, man, we could talk about this. Uh, I, I could honestly talk about this game forever, but uh, I think we're getting kicked out. We, we are getting kicked out. So thank you so much for coming in and, and talking to me, and, and thank you for for making such a truly you know mind expanding uh, work. Uh, Thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, when you worked for seven or eight years on something, <laughs> it's just really nice when people come to you and say, "Hey, man, I I dug this game." You yeah. Know, because man, it's a lot of lot of effort yeah i mean there's really there's really yeah there's really nothing like it it really it really really paid off so well thank you again john thanks for having me yeah well thanks once again to jonathan blow for coming on the show uh and thank all of you guys for going on that journey with us we went to some interesting places in the conversation not a place that you would expect an interview about video games to go for the most part but that just speaks to the depth and fascinating quality of jonathan's work um so i very much appreciate him and you for going there with us um and that is it this week for adam ruins everything the podcast we will be back in two weeks so please tune in then our producer is Shara morris if you like this show please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, please, to give us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Once again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show is on True TV, and you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Well, thank you guys so much. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.